Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this truly is your world. Um, and it's true that Jesus who died will be satisfied and our earth and heaven will be one. You do, you do intend God to dwell with your people again. And you began that process in the garden of salvation, Lord. And as we're going to see today, this morning, you continued that process, Lord, of, of winning the earth to yourself, which it is already yours, Father. Um, and you do this through your people and for your people. And we thank you for that, Father. So as we look at your word this morning, and as we see a little a side story maybe of, of how you work these things out, God, would we just see how this passage is shot through with your faithfulness to your promises to Abraham and what that means for us today, Lord, as your children, as, as fellow heirs with Abraham, as the sons of Abraham and as the sons of the Father and as brothers of Jesus Christ, the offspring of Abraham. We ask these things for the sake of Jesus Christ and, and his name and his majesty and fame in all of the earth. Amen. You may have a seat. When I was uh, 18, a few years ago, just out of high school, I began working at a manufacturing plant, Condors. It's um, just in Ingolfeld. Some of the some places around here actually sell some of their stuff. So anyway, I stuck around there for over two years, almost three. I, w I worked there uh, for a summer in my freshman year uh, at NBC. I, I really did love my job there, um, but like any workplace, there's politics. Like any secular workplace, maybe. I haven't noticed any at EBC. But like any secular workplace, there's politics. And so someone who is friends with the owner, they started their job there. And they did have a good work ethic. Um, but it, it, he was just a laborer on the rotary ovens. But it, it became pretty clear to people pretty soon uh, that this guy was going to move up the company ladder pretty fast. He was going to excel in the company pretty quick. And so lots of guys, after noticing this, they did what they, they could do to get into his good books, you know, to kind of ride along his coattails. And as he moved up in the company, uh, they'd have favor too. So, so he, inevitably, he inevitably did reach a position of authority. So it, it wasn't really a bad plan for these guys to do that. Um, it went exactly how everyone expected. He became manager of the department, and, and all the people in his good books were dealt with a lot better than the people who weren't in his good books. Uh, and a lot of you might have noticed this pattern at your work, the pattern that I just explained. You might have noticed somebody comes, they're climbing up the company ladder, and people kind of suck up to that guy. People kind of want to ride on his coattails. And as annoying of a pattern it is, or as strategic and good of a pattern as it is, um, we're going to notice that that's actually an ancient pattern. Something similar is going on in Genesis 21 today. Uh, Abimelech is recognizing that Abraham is moving up the ladder, so to speak. Abimelech is actually recognizing that God is blessing Abraham, and he's seeing that that's kind of happening close to him. And so he wants to make peace with Abraham or get in his good books ahead of time. So Abimelech, a pagan king, he sees how large the household and the power and the authority of Abraham is growing. And he makes a peace treaty with him so that he, so he can continue to live peaceably alongside Abraham in the land. So before we get into the text, uh, let me give you some context that might put this event into place and, and bring some clarity as we go through our text. Our text starts with the words, at that time. So some believe that this happened simultaneously at the same time as the passage Josh preached last week. Uh, some think this happened kind of in the same week or same month uh, as, the, as the casting out of Ishmael. So it was a long side event, but you can only tell it afterwards. And some believe it happened 
maybe a year after, and at that time means following these events. Either way, it happens really close to the feast that was held for Isaac that, that we looked at in Genesis 21 last week and, and the banishing of Ishmael. So during the time of our text today, Abraham is still reveling in the fulfillment of God's promises to him. He's still probably baffled at God's faithfulness to him. He's, he's 100 years old and he's looking at a son and it's his son and it's a baby and he's a hundred. <laughs> it's amazing, right? And so Isaac's just barely weaned. They had a feast for that. He's probably walking. Um, Abraham and Sarah, they're just basking in the golden years of being a parent. Uh, I haven't known that yet, but I have heard a lot of people say that, that those are the most precious years of being a parent. And Abraham and Sarah, together, as a couple for the first time, are just reveling in the fulfillment of God's promise. And they're chasing down a toddler at 90-something and 100-year-old. <laughs> so imagine that. Um, pray that none of you will ever have to imagine that. But God in many ways, God in many ways, he's, he's growing Abraham's household. You know, he's growing his lineage. He's growing his posterity physically, but he's also enlarging Abraham. He's giving him more power. He's, he's becoming a big deal in the land. And so you'll remember uh, Abimelech, one of our big players today. You'll remember him from Genesis 20. So remember, there were two stories where Abraham pretended that Sarah was just his, just his sister and not also his wife. So, Genesis 20, Abraham, not for the first time, pretends Sarah is only his sister. This leads Abimelech to take her into his household, and God tells him he's a dead man if he continues with what he's doing. And that led Abimelech uh, to actually give Sarah back to Abraham. God intervened, protected Sarah, and Abimelech actually did an honorable thing. And soon after, Abimelech told Abraham that they can dwell anywhere that they want to in the land before them. That's Genesis 20, 15. He said, dwell anywhere you want in the land before you. And so obviously at the time, it seems like in Genesis 20, that Abimelech wasn't very threatened by Abraham at that time, in that chapter, because he's giving him any land he wants. He's probably thinking to himself, as, as admirable as Abraham is, as big as his household is, he's just a wandering Hebrew shepherd. You know, He's not really going to disturb anything in the land. I'm not very threatened by him, so he can stay wherever he likes. What's he going to do? But after a little while, uh, Abimelech starts to change his tune. So there's, there's probably still some awkward tension between Abimelech and Abraham going on here, because Abimelech took Abraham's wife a couple chapters ago, or, or one chapter ago. Um, but now he sees Abraham's power and authority growing, and he's thinking to himself... I have beef with Abraham, I have awkward tension with Abraham, and he's getting pretty powerful. And that's happening in my backyard. And so I better go and talk to Abraham. I better make good with this guy, make peace with him. So he goes to make a peace treaty with Abraham, to make a covenant with Abraham. So we have Abraham and Abimelech, and they're going to act as our two big actors today, our our two main roles. Um, Abraham's our man of God, and Abimelech, he actually plays more of a neutral role. He doesn't follow Yahweh. Um, he is a pagan king. And at the same time, he's, he's coming to pursue peace with Abraham. So that's admirable. So we can't think of him like a villain in this text. That's just not the way that Genesis uh, puts him forward in either of the stories that he's in. So he's only there to make peace with Abraham. And as we see, just to be safe, uh, maybe to bolster his proposition a little bit and use intimidation, he also brings the commander of his army, Phicol, One more side note before we get right into the text. There are going to be a few times in this text, I think two near the end, where the the land is referenced to as the land of the Philistines. The Philistines aren't living there at the time that this happened. 
But at the time that Moses wrote Genesis, the Philistines are living in the places that these things happened. So Moses, writing to the people of Israel at the time, so that they would understand where this happened, he refers to it as the land of the Philistines. But at this current time, this is Philistines don't live here, and it all happens within the promised land. I thought I'd clarify that ahead of time. So with all of that in mind, uh, let's move into our first observation. should be on your cards and your bulletin there. Uh, observation A Abimelech recognizes Abraham. And we'll start in verse 22. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. We can't just graze over the fact that that pagan kings and authorities are recognizing that God is with Abraham, right? Uh, that, That the one God, the God of Israel, well, future God of Israel, Israel's still kind of in the works here, but that the one true God, creator of heaven and earth, is with Abraham. So they they recognize, and rightly so, that God is the one blessing Abraham here. God is responsible for every member added to Abraham's household, newly Isaac. Uh, God is responsible for every animal that they accumulate. God is responsible for every inch of land, influence, and power that Abraham accumulates for himself. And Abimelech Abimelech sees this, and rightly so, he renders that to God. God is with you, Abraham. And Abimelech has probably heard of Isaac by now. Abimelech's probably heard by now that the 100-year-old Hebrew shepherd in his backyard, who he has beef with, who is growing in power, has had a, a miraculous son, right, through God. And so that kind of confirms the supernatural uh, side to the help that Abraham is receiving. This isn't just circumstance. God is with Abraham. And so um, they see that all of this is God's work. And that that helps us kind of come to the understand that Abimelech and Phicol, they're not as intimidated by Abraham. They're not really afraid of Abraham. But maybe if there's any nervousness in them or any intimidation that they feel, they're actually kind of nervous of Abraham's God, right? They're, they're rendering the credit for the largeness of Abraham's household to his God. And so rightly so, kind of lends the hand, uh, the writer of Genesis lends a hand here that, that their fear is actually in the God of Abraham, at least as much as it is in, in Abraham himself. They have a, a healthy fear of, the, fear of the God of Abraham. And, and that is fair enough, you know. Uh, as great as an army as Phicol probably led with Abimelech, you don't want to be at odds with the God who brings babies from 100-year-olds. You don't want to be at odds with the God who takes a wandering Hebrew shepherd and turns him into a nation in your backyard. You don't want to be at odds with that God. And so they admit that God is with Abraham, and they ask to make a covenant with him. Verse 23. Now, therefore, Abimelech speaking to Abraham, now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants, or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you deal with me, and with the land where you have sojourned. Abimelech is recognizing here that Abraham has the upper hand. The party who is asking for the favor, the party requesting something, is almost always the party who's, who's under the one that they're requesting something from. Abraham has the upper hand. Abimelech used his time, he used his resources, And he went to Abraham to ask this thing of him. So Abraham by now is at least as powerful as Abimelech and probably starting to more than catch up on him. He's he's over Abimelech, right? He has more influence and power probably than Abimelech at this point. And what does Abimelech ask of Abraham? 
Well, as we read, that he wouldn't be dishonest or, or schemish or lie in the land or, or mess with Abimelech at all. So as good as Abraham's reputation is, as clear as it is that God is with Abraham, and it is clear, it seems like Abimelech recalls what happened with Abraham in Genesis 20. And he's saying, look, Abraham, if we're going to live in this land together, would you please deal honestly with me? I remember how you schemed in Genesis 20. Can you, can you put that away if we're going to uh, inhabit this land together? Could you please deal honestly with me? No more schemes, no half-truths. Can you be kind to me since I have been kind to you? And also notice Abimelech didn't just ask Abraham to deal kindly with him, but with his offspring and with his posterity, which means his future generations, his family, his grandkids, his great-grandkids, right? And so what's Abimelech recognizing here? What seems clear to the pagan king Abimelech? Not only is Abraham blessed by God, but Abimelech realizes that Abraham's lineage is secure. So Abraham is blessed by God and his lineage is secure. Abimelech expects the descendants of Abraham, the physical descendants of Abraham, to be in the land for a while. He's saying, Abraham, your lineage is secure. It's clear that you're blessed by God and this is going to continue. You are obviously going to be around the land for a while. Uh, through you, through your children, you're going to be in the region, so I need you to promise me, I need you to swear by God, Abraham, that your kids and that your grandkids are going to treat my kids and my grandkids right after we're gone. And so it's just obvious to Abimelech that Abraham's presence, again, through himself and through his offspring, will be present in the land. The, the pagan kings are starting to take note of God's promises coming to fruition here. And so, much like a co-worker who sees the new guy moving up, Abimelech sees Abraham moving up, and he wants to do what he can to secure himself if Abraham's going to be present in the land for a while and influential. So we have here Abraham, who a few chapters ago was just a wandering Hebrew with a promise from God, and now kings are coming to him. Kings are coming to him to ask him to be kind to them. Abraham, would you please be kind to me? And so this should cause us to, to, to well up in amen to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 1, 27 to 29. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring into nothing the things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. First Corinthians 1, 27 to 29. Abraham can't boast for the position he's in. Even Abimelech recognizes that this is God's work. Abraham can't boast in the presence of God. He was just a Hebrew wanderer. He was, he was living at his dad's house. when he, he was still pretty old then to be living at dad's house when God called him out to go inherit this land. So if you feel like boasting here this morning for any reason, uh, maybe because you've had a good upbringing, because uh, you know your Bible, or, or even if you feel like boasting because you had an awful upbringing and you're still a Christian, don't. Boast only in the Lord, because the only reason that you're here today, the only reason that I'm staring at a room of fulfilled promises through the line of Abraham, of stars and of sand and as many as the, as many as the stars and seashores, the only reason that I'm looking at you guys here today and that you're looking at me and that we are saved is because God took a wandering Hebrew who was nothing, and used him to shame the powerful, and used him to start making kings nervous in the land of Canaan. You, just like Abraham, you are here because of God's grace. And so, because of God's faithfulness, Abimelech is at Abraham's whim, whim here. And what does Abraham say to him? How does Abraham respond to Abimelech's request? Verse 24. 
And Abraham said, I will swear. Abimelech was kind to Abraham in Genesis chapter 20. And so Abraham, like a true follower of his, of his God, he shows kindness and he does unto others what he would have done to him. He agrees, Abimelech, I will show you kindness. But before they finalize this agreement, before they seal the deal, cut the covenant, uh, Abraham has a bone to pick with Abimelech. There's something bothering him. He wants to get out of the way, uh, an axe to bury. So let's look at this in our, in our next sec- section here, uh, section B. Abraham confronts Abimelech. What was Abraham's issue? Well, verse 25 tells us that he reproved or complained to Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. So apparently Abraham had, had built a well on his land and some of Abimelech's servants took it from Abraham. The, the King James translates this uh, much more accurately. It says that they violently seized it. They violently took it from Abraham and his servants, this well. Uh, it doesn't mean they dug it up out of the ground and threw it over their shoulder and walked away. That'd be ridiculous. But it, it means that this was Abraham's land. This was Abraham's well. It's his property. It's his territory. And now some of Abimelech's servants have come and they've kind of started ruling that area. They're acting like that's their well. They're probably guarding it. They're probably pretty ferocious. And so they treat it like it's their land when in reality, it's Abraham's land. And they took from him a well, precious with water for the survival of him and his household and all of his animals that he would have to water daily. So... This is what's holding Abraham up from from continuing with this covenant that Abimelech is asking of him. So to to kind of put it into modern terms, how the conversation is flowing here, imagine Abimelech hands Abraham a contract, a proposition on a piece of paper, and Abraham goes to sign it. Everything looks good. And right before he goes to sign it, he looks over the paper and he says, but you know that's my well, right? Because your men don't know that that's my well. Your men have stolen my well. So before I'm going to sign this, Abimelech, I need you to answer to me for my well. I need you to deal kindly with me, and I need you to deal honestly with me if you're expecting me to deal honestly with you. Abraham's actually finally starting to grow a spine here. So in chapter 12 and 20, Abraham was being rebuked by kings, and he didn't even have anything to say to them. They were right. But now in chapter 21, Abraham is rebuking kings. Abraham is, stand, Abraham is standing up to kings and acting like this is his land because it is. So let's look at uh, what Abimelech says to Abraham here. And it looks like Abimelech didn't even know about this situation. Verse 26, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. In other words, Abraham, I didn't even know about this. I, I just found out through you. I had no idea this was going on. And isn't that how it goes so often when you're trying to make peace with somebody or when you're trying to figure something out with somebody? It's been burning in your chest. You have a grievance against somebody. You've been meaning to talk to them about it forever. And you finally go and you sit down with them and you explain to them what what your issue is. And they just look at you across the table and say, I wish you told me sooner. I had no idea. So that's what's going on with Abimelech and Abraham here. It's not so much that they have a conflict, but more of a misunderstanding. And they're going to have to work through this mis- misunderstanding to move on in the covenant that they're making, move on in the, in the, in the deal that they're making here. So, so let's move on and see how they do this in verse 27. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech. And the two men made a covenant. They cut a covenant here. And as we've noted before, covenants were common in the ancient world, especially in the Near East. Covenants were just a very common thing, and that's exactly what they did to, 
to, to deal with this situation. And Abraham, the greater party, gives a gift to Abimelech to seal the deal. So again, that's a little nod to the fact that Abraham's the greater party here. He has the leg up on Abimelech here. Abraham knows that this land, through God, is his land. And he's, he's walking with his chin up now like that's true. And at the same time, he's not too full of himself to make peace with Abimelech. He has a humble confidence about him. He's confident. He knows this is his land. But again, it's not barring him from making peace with a pagan king. So he has a humble confidence about himself. And it's a confidence in God's working on his behalf. Not in his own ability, but a confidence in God working on Abraham's behalf. And that allows Abraham to be peaceable with a pagan king here. But he's still not totally satisfied over the little discrepancy they had there about the well. So look in section C, verses 28 to 30, what they're going to do about that. Section C, an issue well settled. Yes, I did that on purpose. Abraham, verse 23, Abraham set seven ewe lambs. The Hebrew word for seven here is Sheba. Sheba, hold on to that thought. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? And he said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand that this may be a witness for me that I have dug this well. Abraham is using these ewe lambs here. They're young female lambs. Uh, they'd be valuable for propagating herds. It's a, it's a very generous gift that Abraham is giving to Abimelech here. Abraham is using these ewe lambs to buy that well from Abimelech. And you think, we'll buy it from him. I mean, isn't that already Abraham's well? Why is he buying it from Abimelech? And yes, it is Abraham's well. Abraham knows it's his well. Abimelech knows it's his well. They both know that. But just in case there's ever any future confusion on whose well this is, just in case this issue ever comes up again in the future, maybe even between Abraham's posterity and Abimelech's posterity, these ewe lambs will serve as a testimony, as a representation of who really owns this well, whose land this actually is, and it's Abraham's. He's settling the misunderstanding and making peace. And it's coming from his own pockets. Abraham is making peace here at his own expense. He's the one giving up the ewe lambs to get back his well. He's making peace at his expense from his pockets, and the well is already right, rightfully his. And so a note that we can take from our patriarch today is that as followers of God, peace, peace is paramount to rights. Abraham gladly gives a gift for what's already his to clear confusion and bring peace. Peace is paramount to rights. It came out of Abraham's own pockets, and he's making it his problem. But one day, Abraham's going to die. Abimelech is going to die. And they'll remember this covenant, but not from the grave. And, and even the ewe lambs here that Abimelech received from Abraham, they're going to die too. So then where will the sign that this is Abraham's well be? Well, Abraham names the area of the well after the oath that they swore over it that day, verse 31. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So Beersheba is two Hebrew words. They named the place of the well Beersheba to represent the covenant, the oath that they made that day. Beersheba is two Hebrew words. So Ber means well, well. And like we looked at before, the word seven is the word Sheba. So representing the seven lambs that Abraham gave to Abimelech. Also in Hebrew, the word for oath is Shebu. So the word for seven is Sheba, and the word for oath is Shebu. And in the Hebrew, they're all the same Hebrew letters. 
So there's kind of a pun going on here. So some of you, if you look in your footnotes on that verse, it, it might translate it uh, well, and some of you, or oath, sorry, and some of you, it might translate it well of seven. Some might say well of oath, and some might say well of seven. So is it, are they naming the place the well of, of seven, or are they naming the place the well of the oath? Well, I think they're naming it both. It's a Hebrew pun. It's a, it's a play on words. And so now the name of the land will always represent the oath that Abimelech and Abraham made over this well, so that their children and that their grandchildren don't ever war over this well once they're gone. Does that seem like a lot of hassle over a well? A lot of um, ink spilled from the author of Genesis over this well, and a lot of effort on Abraham's part. Well, no, I, I don't think it's uh, overkill here, and there's a couple of reasons for this. Firstly, like we've looked at, the well is a precious source of water. Right now they're in the Negev, they're in the south lands. There's not a lot of water there. Abraham's going to need this well to keep feeding his house, his animals, the people, all of those things. So it's a precious source of water. So this is no small thing to scoff at here. Abraham wants to secure his well. But why else would this well be so important to Abraham? Think of this. This well, as far as we know, as far as I could tell from my study, this well is the first permanent landmark that Abraham put on the land. It's the first permanent thing that Abraham has put on the land. So Abraham and his people live in tents. Tents move around. His tents took him to Egypt. His tents took him back into the land, in and out of the land. But a well's not going to go anywhere. A well can't go anywhere. So this well is a sign of permanence. It represents long-term commitment to stay in the land. This well is a landmark of Abraham's faith strengthening. As he stops his wandering and begins to settle, and as in the last few chapters we've seen his strength, his faith is beginning to strengthen here. Sorry, not in the last few chapters, but at the end of chapter uh, 20 and at the start of chapter 21. With the casting out of Ishmael, we see a kind of a hinge in the, in the book of Genesis for Abraham. His faith is beginning to strengthen, and this well is a landmark of that as he begins to settle in the land. So you think he's going to let it go that easily? No, because it's more to him than just water, and not just water. That's precious, but it's, it's more to him than that. The well represents more than water. It represents the land that God is giving him. It represents his faith. It represents God's faithfulness to give the land to Abraham. It represents God's promises to him. And so they've ironed out an agreement and Abraham, for, for a pretty penny, for a large cost of the ewe lambs, he keeps his well at his own expense. Verse 32, so they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Again, Philistines aren't there, but this is all happening within the promised land. So then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. It looks like the covenant was good enough for both parties here, so everybody gets up and goes home. They have a peace treaty. Uh, they've buried the hatchet on the issue with the well. They, they've made peace. They, they acted like grown-ups. They acted like adults. And despite some baggage, despite other things, they have made peace together. And now there's peace in the land. And to see how Abraham takes advantage of this peace, look at verse 34 uh, and th 33 and 34 with me, sorry, in section D, dedication and worship. This is how Abraham takes advantage of the peace in the land, what he does with it. Verse 33. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. How does Abraham take advantage of the current peace? 
He calls on the name of the everlasting God. He prays. He's freed up to worship. And so now what about this tamarisk tree? What's a tamarisk tree? What's it doing there? I had to look up what a tamarisk tree was. Um, The tamarisk tree is symbolic of two things, I believe. One, Abraham's resolve to stay in the land and be faithful. And two, devotion to the everlasting God. I believe the tamarisk tree represents both of those things. So first, a tamarisk tree, it can grow up to 30 feet tall. And the shade of a tamarisk tree has a way bigger reach. So there's a lot more presence of the shade of a tamarisk tree than an average tree. And they're extremely durable. They're super durable. The shade that they provide is way cooler than other trees. Lots of people in the ancient world use them to make houses and furniture. They're very durable to weather, too. They can withstand drought. They can withstand heat. They can withstand flood. And most tamarisk trees live well over 100 years. They live to be old trees. So basically, they make a presence, and they're not going anywhere for a long time. No matter what, drought, flood, whatever, a tamarisk tree is going to be in that land for a while. And so as for Abraham's resolve... This tree, this tree is a symbol of him putting his roots down, so to speak, you know? He probably planted it pretty close to the well, and so this is him planting long-term, lasting uh, resolve to stay in the land for a long time. So Abraham's finally, again, we see more evidence of this, starting to settle down in the land. Finally, a man who is in and out of the land in tents, wandering, making schemes, this and that. He's finally now installing permanent wells and planting trees and symbolically devoting himself to stay in the land. Come flood, come drought, come trial. It's a sign of commitment. No more wandering around, God. I'm going to be in the land that you called me to, and I'm going to stay. And I'm going to plant this tree to represent that I'm staying. It's a sign of faith-based commitment. It's a a sign of tethering himself to what God has actually called him to. Okay, so that's the first thing it represents. Scholars also agree that Abraham is saying something about God by planting this tree, because it's connected to his his act of worship and his calling on the name of the everlasting God. God everlasting. The tree represents something of God's everlastingness. So when Abraham dies and Isaac is a grown man, the tamarisk tree is going to be there, overcasting a shade and a presence over the area. When Isaac has Jacob, the tamarisk tree is still going to be there. When Jacob wrestles with God and receives the blessing, the tamarisk tree is still going to be there. The tree is a testimony from Abraham that his God is everlasting, and no matter what comes, God will be with there with God will be there with Abraham, and not only Abraham, but his offspring after him, until all of the nations are blessed. Abraham is offspring after him, their offspring after them. The tree will eventually wither and die. It is just a symbol, but it symbolizes something. Symbolizes that our God is the same God who was with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, the apostles, the early church. Our God is the same God, God everlasting, who was there with Augustine, Calvin, Luther, the God who's still with us, the God who's doing something here today in the hearts of his people. God has really seen this plan through. God really lived up to his promises when he called this Hebrew out of his father's house and said, I'm going to make a great nation of you. Through you, all the nations will be blessed. And this tree represents that God everlasting will be with the people of God generation after generation after generation with his presence there. No matter what comes, drought or flood, God will be there. And lastly, verse 34 ends us with Abraham staying put in the land. Verse 34, and Abraham sojourned Many days in the land of the Philistines. Many days. So that's our passage today.
This is not the same Abraham that we have seen in a lot of other passages up until now. And next week we'll see his faith grow even more as God grows him. But, but through God's faithfulness, kings are recognizing Abraham's power and influence. And Abraham is walking and talking like the land is his. And he's not only acting like the land is his, he's doing it in a spirit of peacemaking. He, he's acting in peacemaking like a true son of his father. He's making peace at his own expense and attempting to make sure that this peace lasts into the future. So... On the note of Abraham's peacemaking, let's look at some truths for today. As you look at the first truth for today, making pilgrim peace. Proverbs 16, 7. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Bruce Walkey translates this verse from Proverbs to say, when a man is at, uh, when a man is pleasing to the Lord, even his enemies sue for peace with him. Even his enemies pursue peace with him. Meaning when a man of God walks with God, his enemies approach him to ensure that they're at peace with him. And that's exactly what we've seen today in our passage with Abimelech on his clock, on his time, with his resources, going to Abraham to make peace with Abraham. When a man walks with the Lord, even his enemies go to pursue peace with him. The people of God are a peace-making people. Peace follows them. They attract peace. And we've looked at Abraham and Abimelech negotiating today. And as we look at them negotiate, we, we see again a more confident Abraham pursuing peace. And when we look at the New Testament instructions for the seed of Abraham, for sons of God, God expects nothing less from us. Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You want to be a son of your father in heaven? You want to be a true son of your father Abraham? You want to be a, a, the offspring of Abraham? Pursue peace. Love to make peace. Go out of your way to make peace. Hebrews twelve fourteen. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Do you, do you see that the holiness that the believers of God, the holiness that the people of God will not see the Lord without is tied to striving for peace? Peace isn't an option here. Peace is definitive of the people of God who have a holiness that they're not going to see the Lord without. Striving for peace with everyone. So, what does this peacemaking actually look like? Well, let's take some cues from Abraham, because we've seen a great example of it in our, in our passage today as Abraham and a pagan king made peace. Firstly, the first thing we can learn about peacemaking from Abraham is that believers should agree to the requests for peaceful relationships. Believers should always agree to requests for peaceful relationships. Abimelech approached Abraham for peace, and instead of telling him to go away, and by the way, get your guys off of my well, instead of telling him that, Abraham was glad to make peace with him. Even through the awkward tension that they probably had through Genesis 20, this conversation was, I promise you, a very human conversation. Even though they had past baggage, they made peace. Abraham did not neglect an opportunity for peace. So believer, never turn somebody away who desires peace. If someone wants to make up with you, like Jesus, the God of the universe, has made peace with you. He's reconciled to you. Who are you to turn them away? Follow Abraham's example today. No no matter what you have for baggage with that person, no matter what's happened in the past, no matter how awkward the baggage in the past is, you are to make peace with them. Next truth we can learn from Abraham about making peace is that believers should try to restore peace when it is disrupted. So this is a little different from the first point. When someone comes to you requesting to make peace, you have no right to ever say no to that, ever. 
Next, believers should try to proactively restore peace when it is disrupted. So, we've seen Abimelech's servants, they took Abraham's well as their own well. This really bothered Abraham, and instead of holding it in and, and resenting Abimelech and just, just harvesting resentment, instead of making war on Abimelech, what does Abraham do? He acts like a grown-up. And he makes peace with Abimelech. He talks to Abimelech about the well. He brings it up. He goes and he makes peace with Abimelech about it. He even does this at his own expense again by giving Abimelech the ewe lambs. So believer, if, if you have any tension with any of your relationships today, don't wait. Don't harbor in resentment. Don't, don't leave anything unforgiven. Don't leave anything unapologized for either. Make peace when there's tension. Matthew 5, 23 to 24 says, So, if you are offering your gift at the altar... And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Whenever there is a disruption of peace in relationships, be quick to make peace. Be quick to reconcile. Make it a priority proactively. The next thing we can glean from Abraham's example today is that believers must use peace... Believers must take advantage of peace and prosperity to serve God with. So what did Abraham do with the peace in the land? He called on God's name. He worshipped the everlasting God. And you and I are supposed to take, take advantage of peace in the same way. Pursue it and then take advantage of it. 1 Timothy 2, 1-2. First of all, then I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and a quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So live well and peaceably in the land like Abraham when there's peace, and, and pray to the end that there would be peace in the land, right? Pray, pray that the people of God could live at peace even with the politicians that we don't like in the land, right? Through prayer, pursue peace in the land so that, so that what? So that your policies can get voted in? So that you can live an upward life so that you can worship God through your life, living godly and dignified in every way. Peace. Be people of peace. Romans 12, 8. If possible, if possible, not if favored, not if not awkward, if possible. And how many times is it possible and you're pretending it's not possible? And me too. If possible, so far as it depends on you, not so far as it depends on them and what they did. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. What does all mean in the Greek? All. You may think that there's situations in your life where peace with somebody is impossible. And so you just don't even try. And people can be difficult. There are going to be situations in your life where peace isn't an option. There's, there is no exit for peace. There's no possibility of it. But if that is ever the case, believer, seed of Abraham, son of the living God, if that's ever the case, never let that be because you didn't pursue peace. Never let that be because you decided it was dead too early and you gave up on the pursuit of peace. In so much as it depends on you. Yeah, but they, no. Nope. In so much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You worry about yourself. You do everything that you can to attain peace so that if there must be a lack of peace, if that's a necessity, you are in the clear and you have done everything that you could have. The word of God commends you this morning 
to make peace. The word of God commends you to make peace wherever you need to make peace. If you have a beef with somebody in this building, if you have tension with somebody in this building this morning, don't leave the building before you make peace. The word of God says you shouldn't have come to this building before you made peace. Use Abraham as an example for peacemaking. Now, all of this is good and true. We have a great example in Abraham of peacemaking, of a conversation they had. And that's who we've taken pointers from so far. But Abraham lived in a covenant and in a time where where the way God administrated things was come and see. Abraham lived in a come and see covenant where he would be blessed and he would be great before the nations. And the way that the nations would know the true God is to come and see Abraham. Right? Go to him and make go to him and make peace is what Abimelech did. The nations are going to Abraham. So we looked at how to make peace in situations that come into our life, situations that affect our inner circle, things that come to us. But we live in the new covenant, and it's a it's a go and tell covenant. It's a go and make make peace covenant. A go and make peace covenant. So in Second Corinthians five, Paul says, We've been given the ministry of reconciliation. That means we've been given the ministry of going and pleading with people to make peace with King Jesus. So we don't just wait for stuff to come to us to make peace with. We go and we make peace for King Jesus. Abimelech saw that Abraham was growing mighty in the land. And that made him nervous. And so he went and made peace with Abraham. King Jesus currently, now, today has all power and all authority in all of the land. And there's coming a day where he's going to come back and he's going to claim everything. Abraham with his well, with his tamarisk tree, he made a little mark on the land. A little later, some of his descendants made some marks on the land. People of Israel made some marks on the land. Those were just little marks leading up to the big thing. Jesus Christ is coming back and he's going to point at everything as the Puritans used to say. When he returns, he's going to go, mine, 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 mine. Everything belongs to him now. And like that made Abimelech nervous watching Abraham grow. So he went and made peace with him. Jesus' kingship should make the world nervous if they are not at peace with him. Jesus' kingship should make the world nervous since they're not at peace with him. So go. Be children of your father Abraham. Be children of your father in heaven. Go and make peace. Tell them that Jesus reigns and that they need to come to terms with him today and reconcile while there's still time. Tell them that he's already made peace by the blood of his, of his, of his cross, Colossians 1. He's already made peace. If they would make peace with him. In Isaiah 27, I love it. This isn't in my notes, so I hope it's in Isaiah 27. He says, oh, that they would make peace with me. He even repeats it twice. Oh, that they would make peace peace with me. If you're here and you haven't reconciled with King Jesus, don't waste any time. Right now, Jesus is holding one hand out, offering peace to you, and with the other hand, he's holding back his wrath for the nations and his rulership over earth with a rod of iron. And and soon he's going to drop both hands. So while he's pursuing peace with you, pursue peace with him. Be people of peace. This brings us to our last point, the everlasting God. Making peace is hard. That's why it says to strive for peace. Strive for it, pursue it. Peace is not going to fall in your lap. Making peace is hard. Making peace with friends and family, that's hard enough. But preaching the gospel to make peace with the world, between the world and God, the task that we've been given by Jesus, that's even harder so the path of peace, it's a, it's a difficult path. You know, it, it takes elbow grease to make peace. So when you're weary, 
Where do you look? Where do you look for you to get peace, to keep pouring peace out to others? You look at the everlasting God. You look where Abraham looked. The everlasting God. Let me read again our call to worship from this morning. Isaiah 40, verse 28 to 31. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. As you run this marathon of peacemaking, as you fight, sweat, and bleed for peace, as you were called to do, remember to turn to your only source of strength, the everlasting God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh, that we would be your children in peacemaking. God, is it not on your heart to make peace? Is your word not to every nation, to every inch of this earth, to bring peace through, through the testimony of your son, Jesus Christ? Father, you couldn't have done anything more to make peace with us. Everything's done. You couldn't have done anything more to make peace with us, Father. Thank you for that. And you knew that was your plan the whole time, Father. So you called Abraham out of the land. And you made him great so that through his lineage, you could bring Jesus Christ, the true offspring, to make peace with us. And so, Father, thank you for the example of Abraham making peace with a pagan ruler in your word today, Lord. Thank you for that example. And God, thank you that we have an even better example to be mindful of in Christ. And Lord, thank you that we don't just have examples. God, if you left us with examples, 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 and no Holy Spirit, no cross, no gospel, no everlasting God to look at and receive strength from, Father, there would be no peace. There would be no hope. But God, you have made all things possible. And so peace is possible in our relationships. Peace is possible between you and the world, Father, through the cross. So Heavenly Father, may we, may we go and do these things. May we do them before you with, with upright hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.